Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Psychology of Music podcast, hosted by the York Music Psychology Group, and dedicated to exploring the fascinating fields of music psychology, music cognition, systematic and empirical musicology. My name is Dr. Mimi O'Neill, and I'm thrilled to welcome you, or to welcome you back. The goal is to share our work with each other in the field, and also to make these exciting topics more accessible to non-specialist audiences. So, whether you are a researcher, a student, a musician, a music lover, or just curious about the way that we interact with music, you're in the right place. We'll feature interviews with experts in the field who are sharing their latest research findings and providing practical insights into how the new knowledge created can be applied. Our guest today is Dr Sarah Price, a lecturer in music industries at the University of Liverpool. Her research interests are in understanding audience experience and engagement with arts and culture, and how academic research can shape practices within the arts sector. Her current research is an AHRC-funded fellowship investigating audiences for classical music. Hello and welcome to the Pompod and thank you so much for taking time out of your day to talk to me. When we first met uh, and got to know each other, you were wrapping up your WACA project. So could you give us a bit of an overview of that? Absolutely. So WACA, um, because the phrase understanding audiences for the contemporary arts was too much of a mouthful, uh, was a project looking at who those people are who are drawn to the weird and wonderful end of arts and culture. The stuff that quite a lot of people run a mile from. So that's things like contemporary dance or uh, experimental theatre or contemporary classical music or even um, into the visual arts. So even kind of contemporary visual arts. Those are things that a lot of people find incredibly off-putting. And yet there is an audience for it. So who are those people and what drives them to go to that, that, as I said, weird and wonderful side of things? Um, and I believe that one of the unique factors about that project um, was that it was really looking at arts audiences, inclusive of all those things you said, theatre, visual art, music, dance, literature, etc. Your background, though, is music. So how did you find that broadening of focus and, and were there noticeable differences in attendees at these different types of events? The, the broadening of focus was quite complicated, uh, particularly when it came to trying to do a literature review and suddenly having to get up to speed on the literature for performing arts in general, which does have quite a lot of overlaps. But then when we got into galleries um, and cinema, that is just a whole different set of literature with its own disciplinary background that was really complex to try and get a handle on um, but it's a fascinating way to approach things to take someone who is in, interested in a particular art form and then ask them about every art form and we really did start to see differences between how people approach those different art forms we certainly found that contemporary classical music was out on a limb as being something that was really hard for people to engage with or not the most appealing, let's say. The other end of things was um, actually the two I just mentioned, galleries and cinemas. And there's something about the fact with galleries, you could just drop in at a time that works for you. With cinemas, there are multiple screenings on. 
that they made them incredibly flexible around people's lives in a way that a, a single event that's only on one particular evening is not. Really interesting. Um, and having heard you speak about the, that project a few times now, one of the really striking phrases or, or ideas that I attribute to you is how do you reach the non-attenders? And you speak on this so well, actually. So I was just wondering if you would maybe explain this challenge and, and how you went about addressing it. It's it's really hard to reach people who don't do something. Um, it's uh, Stephanie Pitts, who I worked with on this project, has, has this wonderful sentence that... Um, People who don't go to the theatre don't gather on a Tuesday night to not go to the theatre together. So non-attenders are, are kind of dispersed in that way. They're not gathered together. They're not easy to reach. However, one way of doing that is to reach them through other art forms. We started to think about this idea that within every attender is a non-attender. For everything that people did, and some people go to huge numbers of different arts events, there was always something they didn't go to. And they could speak on why they that was not appealing, why they didn't go to that particular kind of art form. This study was was really an interview study. So uh, I did I interviewed 135 people as part of this study, yes. which joined together with a pilot project that Jonathan Grass had done with Stephanie that was another 50 people on top of that. Huge number of transcripts, huge number of, uh, of words in all of that. But I started every interview with exactly the same question. Um, so how would you describe the kinds of arts and culture you normally go to? And so many of the responses were, oh, eclectic. Oh, I go to a bit of everything. I like everything, really. And it is very rarely true that they like everything. And it's I've got to say, it's normally opera that they don't like. Um, so people, so there's this, this disconnect between how people think about what they do, how they present themselves, and then what it is they actually do. And in doing these interviews, we tended to kind of surface that disconnect. And after a bit, people would start saying, oh, I really should try that. I really should go to these things again. And whenever they use the word should, I would jump on it and say, mm. okay, what's that should? What does that should mean? And it came for a range of different different things, as, as we talk about in our book. But one of them was that they recognised they wanted to be this, this open-minded person who went to lots of different arts and culture, and then they realised actually there was, a, there was a really hard limit on that for them. Yeah, that, I mean, that's fair, isn't it? Because actually engaging with arts can be expensive, both in terms of time and financially. So expecting people to go to everything is, is, a, is a big expectation. Um, and this was a collaborative project, and you've mentioned that not only with the partner arts organisations, but also with your mentor, your collaborator, your partner in crime, if you like, Professor Stephanie Pitts. What influence has that relationship had on your work and, and your career going forwards? I've been working with Stephanie for 10 years now. So literally 10 years ago this autumn was when I started my PhD and she was my supervisor and then became my boss when I was a postdoc and, and now just kind of collaborator and, and friend and mentor. And I, 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 I love the way she um, writes. I find myself desperately trying to channel her when I'm writing. Um, and I've watched her write on a Google Doc before and there's just this pause and then she just comes out with this amazing sentence that's so clear and so perfect and mine just looks like a garble around it. We, that partnership was was a really nice example of, of having slightly different strengths and working to them. Um, so I love co-writing. I 
am currently trying to write this book on my own and I find it so much harder than working with other people because each of us would progress a bit of the project and then turn to the other one and say oh what do you think of this and then suddenly you'd have all these new ideas and you'd run with it for a bit and then come back again and it was just that energy um that you get from working with other people from collaborating with other people I think is uh yeah I, I find it quite hard to do without now yeah I'm sure and was that just an organic sort of it developed over time or did you really seek out that that mentorship when you were starting your PhD? No, I think it really developed over time. I think what I really like about all of the work that I've done is that it's it's very rarely ever been in isolation. Even when I'm saying I'm writing this book now, actually, I'm always working in collaboration with partner organisations. And I think you you find these people who you really gel with and then you gravitate towards them and find uh, as many ways as possible as working with them and we're so lucky in academia that that is actually something we we have control over we can decide to try and get funding together to work on something or decide to co-write an article or something like that because there's just a kind of energy there that that we want to capitalize on yeah great And, and you've mentioned the book you're working on now we'll come back to that later but um, I just quickly want to wrap up the, the conversation about the Wacker project. Um, the output of that was a very accessible and actually really useful resource aimed, I think, at those sort of working in arts engagement. Where can people find that? So the main output from that project is a book uh, that is called Understanding Audience Engagement in Contemporary Arts. And we really... Uh, go through it's it's the whole project is kind of really captured in that book and you can hear a lot of quotes from the people that we spoke to that's the audience voice is really strong in there and it, it really kind of walks through lots of different parts of how audiences engage with the arts how it has a place in their lives how they decide what it is that they do and don't want to engage with um, but also quite practical recommendations of what people working in the arts might be able to do with that information. For those of you who are new to the podcast this series, we run alongside an online speaker series in which people working loosely in the field of music psychology or music cognition present their work and start a conversation. Please note that these will now be taking place at a slightly later time of 2.30 British summertime on Fridays. So if the Friday afternoon fatigue sets in this week, this will serve as the perfect pick-me-up to get you through to the end of the week. As well as chatting to me for the podcast today, Sarah will be presenting as part of this Music Cognition Matters speaker series. Can you give us a brief overview of what you will cover in your presentation? I am going to talk about where we are at with classical music audiences today. So what it is that we know from the research. I'm actually going to take a little bit of a history and say, how is it that we got to a point where we are researching classical music audiences? I'm researching them very intensely. I'm currently doing this literature review with every year. It it kind of doubles the amount of research that we have on it. And it's really quite hard to stay on top of at the moment, actually. So I'm going to look at how we got to this point, what we know about how audiences engage with classical music today and what classical music organisations might do about that. 
great um i'm certainly looking forward to that and as i said if you want to join us for that talk then you can find the joining instructions on our website www.musmus-cog-matters.glitch.me invite your colleagues your students your friends and family and anyone who you think would be interested in this subject so you are currently on research leave with a large grant to facilitate further investigation of the audiences of classical music. How's that work going? And um, can you give us any insights so far? So I'm now into the second year of this project. And uh, as part of this project, I am both writing a book that uh, is very closely related to the talk I'm giving because it's it's a book that is trying to take stock of what we know about classical music audiences and what we might do with that information to create a future for classical music when the future seems like it's in question at the moment. As part of that, I'm also carrying out a few studies into areas that we haven't particularly looked at yet within uh, the academic world. Um, the first one of those studies is wrapped up or at least I've, I've finished the data collection part of it and that was looking at audiences for amateur classical music that is something that we have paid so little attention to yeah. in both academia but also in in industry and sector research um so I partnered with classical Sheffield who are an organization who supports classical music in Sheffield at, at both the professional and amateur level and put on this big festival of of music every couple of years and did a load of research with the audiences who were at those concerts and there were a few really good findings that came out of it um one being that people didn't particularly distinguish between amateur and professional or didn't think that that was a very useful way of thinking about uh categorizing musical events the second thing i found is that for a lot of people they found whether we want to call them amateur, community, leisure, music events, to be far more accessible than professional music in that they were often cheaper, they were often less formal, and they would also happen outside of those big city centres, which is where so many kind of big orchestras and professional classical music organisations are located. But there was this other finding that came out that I'm still mulling over, and this is that people would say amateur music, it can be incredibly good quality. It can be a bit ropey at times. But when it is amazing, it's this joyful experience. It's this euphoric experience that these people are coming together and you didn't know if it was going to be great. And it is. It's amazing. And what struck me is that that is not a way that anyone describes professional classical music. They don't describe the joy of it just going right. Yeah. And so how is it that we've come to have this expectation of perfection in professional classical music so that in order for this to be an amazing euphoric experience, people are having to do more than perfect? And what does more than perfect even look like? And so I'm trying to work out what it is that professional organisations might learn from how amateur organisations present themselves to kind of disrupt this, this perfectionism within classical music. That's so interesting. And it sort of reflects from a top-down perspective that 
education philosophy that's now, I think, still maybe the minority globally that learning a musical instrument can be for fun and that the end goal doesn't have to be prodigy. It can just be relaxation or release or just enjoyment of the music. And I think enjoyment's so key there. Too often when we talk about the value of learning a musical instrument or singing, Mm. we talk about it in really instrumental terms mm-hmm. it develops these skills look at how transferable it is look at how people learn to work as a team or it benefits them in terms of uh, physically thinking and improving their lung capacity what about just joy yeah and and creative expression and it being an amazing thing just as it is rather than for what it can give you in other parts of your life yeah so i i fear that probably the commodification of everything is what has led us to that point of expecting more than perfection but let's reclaim that I love that idea love that thank you and actually um we talked about your previous project which was sort of all arts inclusive this project focuses not only on music but even more specifically on classical music was that a conscious decision or what took you to that focus for this project it was a conscious decision not because I wanted to reject the rest of arts and culture or because I think classical music is so special. But because I was starting to feel quite frustrated that, as I said, I started my PhD 10 years ago and that was with the City of Berlin Symphony Orchestra looking at their audiences, so really squarely in classical music. It doesn't necessarily feel like the conversation has progressed all that much. We're still having these big debates about whether or not classical music needs to overhaul what it does or just ride out the storm. We're still having big debates about how it is that we persuade people to go to harder classical music rather than just meeting them where they're at. And also, because I do all this work, collaborating with industry, talking with industry, I also realised that there's while the academic research in this field grows and there is more crossover than there ever has been there's still huge amounts of knowledge within academia that are not getting out into industry and vice versa Mm -hmm. and so we needed something that kind of was a bit of an interface between that that is hopefully what this book is is a way into understanding what it is that we have found out from all these studies what it is that industry has found out from all the studies that have been taking place in there for decades a kind of stock take. We know this stuff. We know how non-attenders react when you take them to their first concert. We don't really need to run that again. Mm -hmm. What do we do next with all this information? Really interesting, like great questions. And I guess we just keep an eye on the project as it progresses to to seek answers for some of those things. Um, And you you have said from the outset that, that one of the greatest challenges that you've identified in terms of those that face the classical music sector is just the homogeneity of the audience and if venues or curators or performers or whoever if they were listening to this now what advice would you give them to help diversify their audience if indeed that is actually something that you would recommend and how can they maybe attract those people who who typically avoid traditional concert formats i think if we want to ask the question why is the audience so homogenous and by homogenous i mean overwhelmingly white older Uh, middle class and university educated Mm -hmm. look at how homogenous the offering is Mm -hmm. or at least has been for a very long time 
we can't just keep putting on concerts that are two hours long at half seven on a Thursday night with an overture, a concerto and a symphony and expect different people to come into the room. And I realised that that is quite an oversimplification um, because there are different ways in which people present concerts and, and increasingly different ways in which people present concerts. But there's always going to be a chunk of, of the general public who won't set foot in a concert hall. So where can that music go where they would feel comfortable and excited to be there? What kind of music could be programmed that would appeal to very different kinds of people with very different tastes? And maybe that isn't what classical music wants to do as a sector. I think it is what it wants to do as a sector. But that's okay if if there's enough on offer and a place as a whole to appeal to all those different kinds of people. Or maybe not even... Appeal is probably the wrong word because, again, that suggests that we desperately need them to come to us. Like, how do we attract like a magnet? Mm. It's not that. The, the question I keep asking when I'm thinking about the classical music sector and the organisations within it is, who do they serve? Mm-hmm. Do they serve tradition and the preservation of an art form and the dead white men who wrote that music and the musicians on the stage? Or do they serve their local community and the, the the public who might find ways to interact with them. And I think when you put it in those stark terms, it's obvious that it should be that public. It should be the living people around us. But I think too often in the decisions that are made, there is a sense of we should play this because it's a great work that never gets an airing. We should play this because the musicians will love it. Like what would an audience first style of programming and event planning look like yeah really interesting and I think there's there's research that shows us that preference and familiarity quite often overlap and so platforming those unknown or unperformed works is there a way to tie those with more familiar and accessible pieces of music so that there's a bit of something for everyone and it attracts a broader range of people how to attract audiences to less known works is a huge, huge problem that I don't necessarily have the answer to. Unfortunately, there are, the the canon in classical music is so tight and there are quite a small number of works that will actually attract a big crowd. When you do put those works on, when you put on Beethoven's Fifth and Pictures at an Exhibition and Enigma Variations, actually we get slightly more diverse audiences coming in because it has that slightly wider reach. So we shouldn't look down on those kinds of concerts. The question of how to then also include stuff that is a bit more varied, how to broaden out that canon, is complex because traditionally we've done an awful lot of shove one short contemporary piece in the middle of it. Mm. And audiences see through that. Mm. They see that they are being forced. I I describe it as eat your greens programming. It's like you've got to sit through this before you get the thing you actually want. Yeah. And so I don't think that's, I think it's quite a disingenuous way of doing it. I think we need to look far more at creating coherent events. How do these different kinds of music relate to each other? What's the listening experience going to be? But then also putting those kinds of programs into spaces, into events that make sense for that program. What's your thoughts on sort of film music as a bridge between familiarity and classical music? Film music is a really interesting question within this because it starts to really push at the boundaries of what classical music is. 
arguably, if we're defining classical music as that kind of orchestral sound, or at least that being part of classical music, and film music concerts have a real appeal to audiences, whether that is a kind of medley of soundtrack, uh, you know, movements or something, or live soundtrack to a film. Um, it's worth noting that the film companies, production companies, have cottoned onto this and started charging a lot more for the rights to be able to do those concerts. So they might be good in terms of accessibility. They are certainly not money makers. I would like to see more a broadening out of what those film music concerts and video game concerts look like, Mm -hmm. because I think that's another part where we're in danger of kind of oversaturating, playing the same things again and again, because those are the things that work in concert. And I think the audience will cotton onto that. And there's there's a danger that we, we repeat too much. So I think there is something really special within that, but... I don't know that we've we've got a future, you know, we've got the path for that yet. It's not the golden ticket, the, the ultimate It's solution. not a golden ticket, that's exactly it, yeah. Yeah, well, we'll keep thinking. I'm sure there is one out there. <laughs> um, we have discussed actually several of the projects that you have or are working on. Um, is there anything else exciting that we should be looking out for? Um, part of this project that I am now working on Um, I'm doing some research around people who are mixing up the concert format. Um, And I'm also still very much looking for organisations who might want to take part in some research with me. So if anyone is listening who wants to do that, I would love it if you got in touch. Um, But rather than just talking to audiences about what they might like, actually saying, well, what happens when you put this in practice? Um, so I'm currently doing some research with the London Chamber Orchestra around some of their concerts. Um, we've just had a great Manchester Collective concert at our concert hall here, the Tongue at the University of Liverpool, um, that combined kind of indie music with classical and then also some amazing lighting and, and kind of dry ice uh, staging that worked really well. So, so that's a, a thing that I'm currently working on. And then one thing that I really want to do as part of this project is to try and include some more, more voices from industry within the academic research that we do. There's experts out there who market this stuff and program this stuff every day and are really on the uh, front line, so to speak, of, of audience engagement. And so... Um, I'm currently kind of designing a study to to make sure that those voices come into what I do as well. Thank you very much. We will look out for the outcomes of that. And we come to my final question that I ask all guests on the podcast, um, and that is what are the most interesting unanswered questions or, or the topics that we should still be paying attention to within this field? I think I might answer that in an annoying way. I think it's less about a topic that we haven't we haven't discussed or we haven't explored because actually the kind of research that we're doing, especially with things like the Contemporary Arts Project, we really were asking people about all kinds of parts of their arts engagement. So that kind of qualitative research has a tendency to to swallow up all of these different topics. But I think we're missing a trick when it comes to the methods that we're using to study audiences. I think we're getting quite siloed into different ways of working, these more qualitative ways 
um, we're seeing this huge surge in uh, physiological monitoring of audiences. So trying to watch what people's bodies are doing whilst they are watching performances. And I'm seeing very little that really marries those two together. And I think that's what we need to think about next is what each of these methods can teach us and what happens when we try and deploy them at the same time. That is an excellent suggestion. And on that note, I will thank you so much for your time today and for, for sharing all of these ideas. I think there's a lot of food for thought in there. You can join us for Sarah's presentation at 2.30 BST on Friday, the 6th of October. All of the information can be found on our website, www.mus-cog-matters.glitch.me. Thanks for listening, and I hope to welcome you back for our next episode. This episode was produced by Ben Forstick and supported by the University of York Enhancing Research Culture Fund.